Welcome to Health System CIO's Partner Perspective Interview Series. I'm Anthony Guerra, founder and editor-in-chief. Today we're talking with Ryan Witt, Managing Director of Healthcare at Proofpoint, about the main security threats facing hospitals, how cyber criminals are targeting the supply chain using business email compromised attacks, and what health systems can do to protect themselves. Ryan, thanks for joining me today. Anthony, it's great to be here. Thank you for the time. All right, Ryan, so tell me a little bit about your organization and your role. Proofpoint is focused on protecting people and how they work uh, from cyber criminals. Uh, cyber criminals these days really focus their attacks on people and focus their attacks on leveraging their, their style of work, their interactions, and crafting lures to go unwittingly co-op them into their, into their crime. Um, my role is I'm the chair of the Healthcare Customer Advisory Board, and I also run the healthcare industry practice. Uh, my emphasis is squarely focused on making sure that we deeply understand the healthcare industry use cases and that we're solving for those use cases so that we can better protect uh, the healthcare institutions and, and those, those in, that, in this industry. Very good. All right. So you mentioned the uh, sort of the email attacks. Um, would you say that's the main threat that you're seeing right now facing hospitals? I mean, I, I think people are being attacked. I mean, you know, if we had this conversation a few years ago, there would be talk about network-based attacks, or we talk about zero-day attacks, or we talk about about patches that weren't being deployed. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the, the cyber criminals were basically exploiting each one of those areas to try to go launch malware against an institution. These days, almost all of their activity is focused on attacking people, and almost always they're doing that by email. Uh, HIMSS recently had their 2020 Cybersecurity Survey released uh, in December, and they said 89% of all attacks come by email as that is an initial point of compromise. So if you had to solve for one thing and one thing only, that would be the area, at least according to HIMSS, that would be, that should get your attention. So uh, we have to assume that the criminals are not stupid. They maybe have ill intent, but they're not stupid, right? So well, if they've changed their tactic from what you were talking about before, more uh, exploiting technical holes to uh, this targeting people through email, they have found this to be the easier, more fruitful line of attack. Would you, does that make sense? They have. I mean, I, I think what they've realized is it's a lot easier to go understand your health system, your environment, the various job functions within your health system, the hierarchy of how your organization works. They can do a lot of this work on Google. They can do a lot of it on LinkedIn, et cetera. They can social engineer their attacks to you. They can craft very compelling, very relevant, very timely lures in the form of an email and some form of call to action to compel you to interact with them. That's a lot easier to do than becoming a deep and deep, you know, deeply studying network security or becoming a, a network administrator and trying to understand where there might be a little vulnerability in someone's environment. So yes, they absolutely do that. And we've seen several examples just through COVID, for example, how the COVID storyline, as the COVID storyline has evolved, mm 
we've seen several examples where they change their lures, they change their emails, they change their form of attack on email. So early on, their attacks might have been, their lures might have been all around frequently asked questions. Hey, you're trying to understand about coronavirus and COVID and what it means. Here's an email purporting to come from WHO, CDC. As the as the pandemic has increased, they were then using, you know, lack of PPE supplies a lure. They were then using the CARES Act as a lure. Um, learn more about the CARES Act. Get your stimulus money. They were using the need to go um, uh, spin up sort of telehealth sort of portals. So they they, they as the storylines evolved, yeah. they have crafted their they have changed their lures. Social engineering has been around for a while, but there's a lot more information out there. Um, is that a big difference from the past? I think it's a huge difference. I think there's a couple of things. One is the barrier to entry is much lower, right? So if you are a cyber criminal gang, and almost always these days, there are some form of organized cyber criminal gang who are attacking health institutions, at least at scale, right? Mm -hmm. It's much easier to go train your team to go surf LinkedIn, what to look for on LinkedIn, how to use Google, that's a lot easier than it is to go go read this technical manual about network yeah. architectures, much, much easier. So not only is it the barriers to entry a lot lower, but back to your point, it's just a lot easier and there's so much more information out there that you could go craft, a, you could go, if you take a little bit of time, I can understand deeply about all sorts of any any individual I wanted to target. I can understand who they are, where they live, what their work life's like, who they report to, um, et cetera. If they're on vacation, if they're way on business, I mean, you know, in a non-COVID world, you know, they're traveling. So building up a picture of this individual is pretty pretty straightforward, unfortunately. And as you work in the healthcare industry more and more, they can then learn all about, hey, how do health institutions typically work? You know, what does this job title typically mean? What does that job title typically report into? So they can go figure out where the vulnerabilities are within your health system and therefore who are the right people to attack. And make no mistake, they're targeting in that way because they want to find a monetizable event. And and so a lot more information and a lot higher sophistication, a lot more thought being put into this. It's it's no longer the the typical um you have a distant relation who's a prince somewhere and you've inherited a lot of money. We right. we've come a long way from that. We've come a long way. But <laughs> if you think how long that that lure lasted, yeah. It lasted so long because it was impactful, right? So they that was kind of like the you know the forefather, if you will, of, of this style right. of attack. Right. So my father's email was compromised once, and uh, we got a note that purported to be from him saying he was in Turkey and needed some money. Now my father hadn't gone twenty feet from uh, New Jersey, so we didn't we didn't really fall for that. But yes, the sophistication right. uh, is definitely through the roof. Um, let's talk more about the supply chain. So that's around COVID. You're seeing a lot of stuff. I mean, it's all at a high level. It's all about being super targeted, whether it's COVID. COVID has opened up a lot of uh, communications with new parties, right? And that right. provides an opening because now it's not strange that we're working. But you and I have talked before and touched on whether it's construction. They find out what's going on. 
either from a macro industry-wide level or from a micro level, what's going on at that health system. They spend a lot of time thinking about what's the pitch and who's the pitch got to go to, right? So, yes, I mean, I think the, the way they're impactful here, right, is they need the receiver of this email to interact with their lure because the type of emails we're sending these today, these days, for the most part, they're not, they don't have a link embedded in them. They don't have a file they're trying to download. So they're not being caught by the traditional filtering technology mm-hmm. that keep these, these malwares from, from the recipient. So what they're doing is they're they're asking information to go cultivate a relationship. They're trying to extract information from you. And if you are a bad actor and you're trying to to um, penetrate a health institution, it's a lot easier to do so purporting to come from one of your already identified partners, whether you are a you know one of your business associates. Um, whether you're a medical device supplier or as as the high as the um, use case you highlighted, you're a con- you're a contractor who is building out a wing or you're adding on to the hospital, doing some work on the hospital. So, if you are able to mimic or to send a, what we call an imposter email, you're purporting to come from these institutions. Right away, the red flags are not raised because. They've done the they've done the homework saying, uh, you know, John Doe is you know would expect to receive an email from this individual. It's not out of character out of character mm-hmm. to receive that email because you've done that research. And then they craft an email again that John Doe would expect to receive because topically it makes sense. It's aligned to his job function, and so those have a lot more success in terms of getting clicks or getting information being provided um, with that sort of lure. So yes, the supply chain we have found more and more as being a hugely um, impactful area, a huge area of focus for bad actors. And we we think it's a trend that will definitely continue. Are you seeing, so so you're saying a lot of these emails are are just text um, and there's no link because, you know, people have gotten pretty good with not clicking on links. So it's just text. Do you see them trying to sort of turn that first email into either a phone call or even a video call um, at sort of the next level? Or do they not do they not do that? They want to handle all this through email, the scam, as it were. Uh, No, I think it's a really good point. Um, They are. First of all, we should not underestimate how patient cyber criminals are these days. Right. So. They're not looking to proverbially hit a home run with the first email, right? They don't need you like, like, like exploits of yesteryear. Click this link, boom, got you. They're very happy to walk you through the process, and the process will be befriending you, cultivating the relationship, and then third or three or four emails in, they're going to ask you for something, or they're going to say, "Hey, can we have a phone call? Or can we, you know, can we interact in some way?" And so that's when they're going to say something like, oh, by the way, we have changed our bank. So can you now send all future invoices to this new bank account, right? So that's an information like I, I've never I've never even asked you for any information. Okay, it's a bad actor. I'm just providing you because I now we have this befriended relationship. Mm-hmm. You now trust me. I'm just asking you now to redirect you know, future invoice um, or payments to a new bank account. 
So it's very hard. That sort of that sort of a cyber attack very much relies on the individual um, taking time to go build a relationship with a cyber criminal, Un- unwittingly, of course, right? It's something that they they were they are unfortunately are being are being duped into this exercise. So that's that's interesting. I, I was I'm glad you got to that point in, in the in the our thought exercise, which is when when the pitch comes. You know, so they're building, and I wrote down when you talk about building the relationship. I wrote like a good salesperson. That's what right. a good salesperson does. They, they, they build relationships. Um, but then at some point, the pitch comes, the close <laughs> comes, as it were, on the scam, right. and it's either send this there or send that there. Um, you know, it's very interesting. I wonder your thoughts around at what point is this not cybercrime? I mean, just because it's an email, is it cybercrime? If there's no link, if they're not getting in the network, if you know, it's kind of interesting. Is this just an old-fashioned scam at some point? I mean, I think it is cybercrime. I think where where it um, where the where the term crime becomes difficult here because I don't know necessarily that the typical legislation that we tend to fall back on or default to with regard to this area doesn't really countenance this level of activity. So HIPAA, for example which was originally crafted in 93. Uh, I think it got enshrined into law in 96. It didn't, it just didn't contemplate this sort of activity. So it may not fall foul of HIPAA regulations, Mm -hmm. um, for example, but without doubt, there is a crime being committed. There is harm being harm. harm I'm with you on the crime. No question. There's crime, but the word cyber, um, I see. That's what I mean. If it's just regular crime, um, if I'm just you know scamming you by a phone call or you know I don't even know if that matters. I'm just curious. Right. Um, but CISO is one of you. You said you know your tools help detect the links. You know what kind of services do you guys have to help protect things without the link, or is it just education? No, I mean I think there are things you can do. Uh, so I mean I think I think the first area. Uh, you know, I would I would definitely start. Well, I, I would definitely incorporate education mm-hmm. into um, your overall cybersecurity culture within, or your cybersecurity defenses. So, regular training, simulating simulating attacks, uh, penetration tests are great ways to go equip your users about how to go spot a possible attack how to go spot possible cyber criminal activities. And so using um, common lures in the marketplace that, you know, back to your example of the, you know, the, the print style attack, but one lures that are very crafted for healthcare that are healthcare sort of examples, exposing that those level of lures via training to your staff and to your teams is really important. I think, Furthermore, recognizing through through threat insight, through data, who within your organization is more likely to be attacked, I think is also really key. So I mentioned to you previously about they're looking for a monetizable event, okay? Well, each health institution is a little bit different, but there are definitely um, functions within your health institution that are more valuable from, to a cyber criminal than others. So 
for example, if you have any sort of clinical research component in your institution, it's quite likely they will be attacked. It's quite likely they will be attacked by nation state actors. When we say nation state, we mean the higher end of the more sophisticated end of the spectrum, those who are looking to go steal intellectual property. So, uh, and therefore have much more sophisticated tools and techniques to go penetrate that. So if you know that, then that could be an area of not only further training, but other capabilities, other controls you can put in place to go protect that environment. Back to you, your supply chain um, example, if you are a team that deals with the supply chain, you are a deal, you're a, somebody in your organization who has to deal with invoicing or issue payments, again, those people are going to be much more highly attacked. So they are Definitely, I would say candidates for not only advanced training but advanced controls, and we could we could talk about those controls if you like. Yeah, definitely, sure. I mean, one of the controls I would definitely look at is is putting in uh, solutions around how do you basically unmask imposter emails. I mean, their imposter emails can be really hard to detect through conventional security tools because, like I said earlier, there's no link there's no um there's no downloadable event there's no down no document to download so they tend to get through a lot of the conventional email uh tools but if you could deploy like domain-based or uh, message authentication tools like dmark dmark is a, is a standard that allows email authentication to basically help stop uh, spoofed emails before they basically defraud your employees, your clinical teams, et cetera. So DMARC is a capability that says, is this email really coming from who it purports to come from? There are protocols in place with DMARC, which is a, which is a um, industry-wide uh, standard that allows you to say, to understand very clearly, who is this email coming from? Even though it's masked, in the header, and it appears to come from a trusted source, DMARC can do that under the covers authentication. So that would be, um, you know, one, I think, very important capability I would look at. Another um, capability I think is really important is recognizing within your environment who potentially is, as we would call them, happy clickers, more prone to click the link when they do appear, or just has the job function or job role that they just have to interact with those, um, you know, third-party apps and third-party, um, they have to click links, they have to go download stuff. That's just the nature of their job function. Not doing anything wrong, but just because of the way they work, it puts them at more risk. So there is something called isolation technology where you can go isolate some of that traffic so you can essentially allow that user to go do their job, but click the link in like a containerized environment mm. so that there is no exposure to the, the, the broader health system network from interacting with that link or downloading that document. So maybe that supplies somebody, again, maybe your supply chain team, you offer that. Maybe you have a, a large number of third-party consultants who 
who have, again, legitimate reasons to go look at third-party um, web, uh, you know, webmail tools or other sort of uh, cloud applications that are not essentially sanctioned or authorized by your by your systems, they don't work for you. You can allow them to have that sort of engagement, allow them to work with those tools, but in a containerized, isolated environment. And that's not something you would want to roll out to everyone. It just it doesn't make sense or it's too expensive or it doesn't scale. You want to target that to people that are high risk? It's not, I mean, it's not a scale issue, but you might want to, I, I, I think it's looking looking at, it's looking at who is the most vulnerable part of your environment. Mm-hmm. If you could offer everybody the Cadillac or the gold standard, whatever, Cadillac sounds so old these days, but if you <laughs> gold standard and, and- I'm old enough, I'm old enough for that. So don't right. worry about that, go ahead. <laughs> um, if you can offer everybody that gold standard, then that's not a bad thing. But that's probably not appropriate for most institutions. Okay. It's probably and it probably is going to be overkill for a lot of job functions. But if you can identify who is more vulnerable, who does work in a way that makes them have to have have to click those links and download documents, you can offer those technologies, or you can offer things like multi-factor authentication. Maybe not all fifty thousand of your of your email of your of your staff need to have multi-factor, but some do, right? So, yeah. in the same way, some might need advanced security awareness training. Some might need isolation technology. So, I think it's more about trying to make sure and try to understand who is being attacked, and therefore mm-hmm. trying to figure out how what controls are best best catered best catered for their for their work style. So let's talk about CIOs and CISOs. Um, you probably see all kinds of setups. I mean, is it as simple as if if an organization is large enough, they have a CISO, the CISO's in charge of this stuff. If they're not big enough and you just have a CIO, the CIO owns this stuff. Um, what are your thoughts around that? I mean, there's all kinds of different reporting structures out there. I don't know if you have thoughts on if one is better than another, you see more success one than another. Have you seen any kind of reporting structure be problematic in your experience where, you know, when I see it like this, there's usually some issues. Uh, what are your thoughts around that? It's interesting. Um, I don't know if I have seen one structure more problematic than the other. I have heard some respected CISOs in the, in the, in the community on conversations like this or other webinars, panel discussions, I have heard them opine at some stage that maybe the CISO will ultimately report into the CMIO or the CMO, and that cybersecurity will more and more be seen as a component of patient safety. Mm-hmm. And as those are the stewards for patient safety and we have to maybe roll that function into those those job areas. The thinking being is if you have a cyber attack against you as an individual, if your identity is breached, to your well-being, that is as impactful as getting the flu or something, you know, whatever mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. a more clinical uh, challenge. And so we should treat patient safety. We shouldn't, we should, we should um, include cybersecurity and, and data and data good strong data hygiene in the overall patient safety umbrella. Um, and, yeah. and and certainly where I do see um, structures that work more 
effectively, at least in my my experience, is those CIOs and those CISOs who can make a connection to building out a cybersecurity posture is akin to building out capability to better serve our patients, to better protect our patients. It's not just a like an insurance play, like, well, we don't really need, we hope we never need to use this technology. We buy because we have to. No, no, it's, it's, you have to, you have to look after your patients and you invest in flu vaccine technology, flu vaccine capability, I should say, because you want to um, protect your patients. You invest in wellness programs because you want to protect your patients. And oh, by the way, you invest in cybersecurity technology because you want to protect your patients. I mean, to me, the last 15 years, the, the degree that security has been elevated is is unbelievable. To me, it's, I mean, any any forward-thinking organization, they're right up there with the very top of the C-suite. I mean, people know now it's got to be built in from the beginning. Uh, you can't treat security as an afterthought or even as an annoyance. That, And I think CISOs have gotten much better at being enablers rather than being seen as impediments. Does all that make sense? I I agree with all that. I think they are like they are a lot better. What's also interesting is we're seeing more and more um, these digital transformation roles, C level roles yeah. happening in healthcare, and they all so those job functions, those people who are rolling out these uh, next generation uh, healthcare digital trans- transformed healthcare, recognize that the sanctity of the, the patient-doctor relationship still is really, really important. It's probably the most important professional relationship anybody's ever going to have. Um, and the vulnerability of that relationship is much higher if you have a virtual sort of engagement. And so therefore, to safeguard that relationship, to make sure that we're able to preserve the importance of that relationship, it behooves any institutions on a digital health journey to make sure that they're building in all the important sort of health uh, security safeguards to preserve that relationship along the way. Because if you fumble the ball virtually and you don't have that eyeball to eyeball long test relationship to fall back on, how likely is that patient to say, you know what, I'm going to go to another institution to treat my patient, treat my data more, 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 uh, I think it's easier to leave your your health institution if everything's going to be digital. Yeah. So they're they're recognizing that and trying to build out the security posture accordingly. How long have you been in security, IT Uh, security? I know I look very young, but I've been in (laughs) (laughs) all of this century, I want to say. (laughs) All of this century. Um, do you see uh, some common elements in people that are are, are, are drawn to this? I, I don't know. I mean, sometimes people fall into things, but I would imagine this is the kind of thing that people are either drawn to or not. You know what? I I guess I'm going to answer the question a little bit differently. Uh, I was drawn to healthcare first because mm-hmm. I see a commonality about people who choose to work in healthcare. And now mm-hmm. I don't directly yeah. work in healthcare. I don't. I'm not in the saving lives business. I know that. I don't want to. I don't want to overstate my importance. Um, but I, I am what I am. I'm a technologist. I'm a, somebody who works in cyber cybersecurity. I actively choose to work in healthcare and have now for many, many, many years because I feel better about this 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 mission, 
the nobility of this industry, the importance mm-hmm. of this industry, and doing my best within my very, you know, very modest ways to go help this industry out. So I find a commonality of, of, of people who choose to work in healthcare. Yes, with regard to cyber, there's also a commonality. There's a there is a law enforcement yeah. uh, uh, kind of overarching theme to people who, who gravitate towards towards um, cybersecurity. A lot of people, ex-military, etc., you find gravitating more and more to cybersecurity type roles. There's, I mean, a lot of the a lot of the language, a lot of the uh, techniques are borrowed from you know from military sort of um history and military sort of strategy and a lot of the words that are used albeit all done in a virtual cyber sort of um format yeah you gotta you gotta enjoy or want to stop bad guys from doing yeah, bad catch, things I, I like catching bad guys exactly that's yeah. gotta be the motivator yeah very cool um I, any other thoughts um that you have i mean i had a few other questions in here about uh and i'll let you pick maybe one final thought we, I don't know if you want to talk about security talent. Um, you know, I know hospitals are always trying, especially if you're in a more r- rural area, what you're seeing around that. If you're seeing any increase in, in talent out there, um, you know, w- what keeps you up at night was one of my questions. That's a favorite for anyone in security. Sure. What keeps them up at night? What keeps you up at night? Um, what are your final thoughts? I, I guess um, a couple of things. And I'll touch on both of those sort of topics. One is, I mean, yeah, there's perpetually going to be a challenge finding cybersecurity talent. It's a challenge in healthcare. It's a challenge more broadly. Healthcare doesn't quite pay the way that other industries do. So healthcare is always going to be, um, have that sort of risk. To me, it's about finding people who, again, want to work in this industry. And often, if you just get exposed to this industry, it's easy to fall in love with it. It's easy to be Mm -hmm. really touched by the magnificent work these people do and wanted to be part of that. Um, I think health institutions should make broader investments in cybersecurity. Um, and I think that will help recruit, that will help increase their ability to pull, to pull talent. Um, I mean, one of the things that was very um, concerning and that recently released him cybersecurity survey that I mentioned a little bit earlier was the amount of what I think generally we consider to be standard cybersecurity technology that's currently deployed in hospitals versus other industries is very poor. Um, mm. So things like encryption or data loss prevention or isolation technology, just to pull out three or four, um, you're talking about adoption rates in healthcare, at least if the HIMSS data is to be, is to be, um, is accurate or close to being accurate, you know, 30, 40% adoption rate where that adoption rate for those, those technologies elsewhere would be in the 70, 80%. Mm. So um, I think one way to not only improve your overall cybersecurity posture is just to make those investments, automate that as much as you possibly can. But I think also showing that you have a seriousness in, in, addressing that problem and maybe tasking somebody with like, we're going to invest in your ability to be successful in this role. And we want to tap into your knowledge about how you've done this and allow you to go build it out here. That might be, you know, that, that commitment to that investment might be a way to go attract net new um, cybersecurity talent into healthcare. 
And well, what I gotta ask the what keeps you up at night question. I don't even have to tell me you make all your customers nervous. But what, <laughs> <laughs> what keeps? I don't know. What's uh, you know? What, I, I I feel a lot better about what I'm gonna say than I did maybe a couple of years ago. I think during what I call the meaningful use era, where I get it. I mean, there was a lot of money on the table to go to go build that in EMR. And so health institutions were very focused on getting that grant money and implementing the EMR. But I think, unfortunately, from a cybersecurity standpoint, there was way too much emphasis and focus on checking the box meeting compliancy standards, because those were part of the expectation from MU. And knowing pretty well, they probably weren't being secure. And we put people's lives at risk. Um, And, you know, there is a couple of reported cases overseas where cyber criminal attacks have directly impacted, caused people to lose their lives or have absolutely interrupted, you know, surgical procedures, mid-procedure. Um, there's a couple of hallmark examples here in the in the Northeast where hospitals just, you know, on, you know oncology departments basically couldn't deliver services for right. a month to six weeks. And so, yeah, what, what concerns me is more and more is will the cyber criminals, I don't know if they necessarily have this plan in place, but they're nefarious. They just don't care. They're nefarious and they're heinous. They don't care how their activities can more and more directly cause real harm, physical harm to patients, and how we as an industry need to be very, very cognizant of that and make sure that we're doing all we can to make sure that doesn't happen. And that so that 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 kind of concerns me. Well, that's a good. I thought, you know, when you mentioned meaningful use, security and maybe interoperability didn't quite come along for the ride, right? Didn't come along for the went ride. in. <laughs> those two they things. did not. Neither one of those came along for the ride. And <laughs> they're both, you know, those, those are both big challenges now facing the industry because we didn't really, we didn't really tackle those issues. Yeah. So everybody's working to kind of uh, catch up. Right. Um, but yeah. So, um, you know, we're on a, we're on a mission. Uh, the CISOs, like yourself, I know a lot of them are mission-driven, um, so I think they'll really appreciate the messaging today, and you've given them uh, some solutions and some things to think about, uh, about the business compromise emails, um, business email compromise. Business I, email I compromise and yeah, the email. It has lots of naming conventions. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Ryan. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed the talk and learned a lot. So I'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony. I really appreciate it. Take care now.